And now, coming to you from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with a very special guest, Ray Naylor, on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're back, and Ray, uh, somebody we've been familiar with your short fiction for some time now, and now there's a novel, the new novel, The, the Mountain and the Sea, which is just out a few days ago, I guess, as we speak. And can you... Yeah, a few days ago. Uh, it's uh, crazy to think it's now it's Saturday. Uh, it's Tuesday, and it seems like this week has been about a year long. So, <laughs> but it's getting through, it's getting some excellent well, reviews. You... Yeah, thank you. I, I've been I've been really happy happy with the way it's been reviewed, actually. Um, and I, I feel like I've read a lot of reviews reviews where I felt like they got it. You know, like they got what I was trying to say, and and that's nice. I mean, because it just it just confirms that you're communicating clearly. Um, you know, uh, that, that people are, are picking up on what you're trying to, to put down. And so that's that's really great. Well, actually, I guess for our listeners, and this is very unfair because I didn't ever suggest we were going to have this this conversation, but what was the elevator pitch for The Mountain in the Sea when, when you first went out to sort of uh, sell it to the world? I did not pitch the book because, uh, so it's a, it's a funny story about how this this happened. I, I was ready to go and get an agent and I had made a big... Uh, list of agents. I, I had a spreadsheet. I had done all my research. I had put together my query letter. I had, uh, you know, whittled the first chapter down to five pages to make it fit in that minimum amount that that agents will read. I had done all of that very hard work, and I was completely ready to fail. I was going into it with that sort of, you know, uh, you enter the the battle assuming you're already dead, right? Um, <laughs> attitude and. Um, uh, completely girded, you know, up to have the have the novel, not get an agent, uh, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then I got an email uh, from uh, from Seth uh, Fishman, and it said, a, you know, a friend of mine. He's with the Gurner Company, and he's my agent now. He said, it said a friend of mine uh, told me that you've written a book, and that if you wrote a book, I need to read it. And will you please send me the manuscript? And uh, so so I did. And, uh, and then and I'm sure Seth won't mind telling the story. Then I got a phone call from him. Uh, you know, if, well, I got, first I got another email and he said, I'd like to set up a call with you. And, and then I got a phone call from him in which he seemed as if he thought I was talking to lots of agents and that clearly he was competing with a lot of other agents who wanted to represent me. And he was kind of like hard selling me on, on what a great agent he is, which he is. Yes, um, yeah. And, uh, and I, I was on the other line, just thinking like, you're the only, you know, person that that I, that I've spoken to, you're really only agent that seems. I haven't even. I had just sent out five query letters, I think, three or four days before. So, so he he uh, decided to represent me. We signed an agreement, and he sold the book. I think six weeks later. Wow. Something like that. We did a couple of of, uh, of rewrites, but it all happened really fast. So I never. I never really had to elevator pitch the book and I never had to, you know, follow up on any of those queries. I, I could go back and read what those query letters, you know, said, but I kind of don't want to. <laughs> just out of curiosity, do you know? I have to say, just just, just for your protection, we're going to cut that last three or four minutes and not put it out so that nobody at the, like the next SFWA get together, like kill you in the night. Because right. I know, I know. <laughs> it's like, it's like this huh. is just, Fallen in front of you, it seems almost. But, but I mean, I, I should say that. So, you know, I called it the long, hard road to overnight success in the sense that, like, I mean, I've written and I've taken writing very seriously since I was 16 and I'm 46. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I spent 30 years 
pretty much doing this, trying to do this every day and uh, going over the transom and, you know, uh, failing and getting rejected. I have a suitcase full of rejections from the 90s, you know, when you have to had to go and actually pay someone <laughs> to reject you by putting in the self-addressed <laughs> oh, yeah. stamped envelope, right? And then they would cut this piece of paper as small as possible to waste as little paper as you know, (laughs) so I feel like I really paid my dues and it's the first time it's the first time I felt like I got a break. Like someone just said, okay, you you don't have to fight this fight. Like you've, you've done, you've, you've fought these battles enough. We're going to give you this one, but I'm still kind of shocked. I mean, I still think, think back to that day. And I think that's just crazy. Do you know, uh, I was going to say, because I was just going to say, do you have any sense of how Seth, Position the novel when he was uh, selling it to, to to various publishers because it's it's been getting attention outside the narrow genre field which is which is good for you and mm-hmm. and probably good for the field but what do you think made uh, I assume more than one publisher interest I yeah there there was there was decent interest in it I mean uh, we had an auction so so there was there was there was good interest I think and um, I really don't know I don't know what he told them you know uh, Seth. And I, we kind of agreed early on that I wasn't going to ask too much about the process and I didn't really want to hear that much about it. He sort of gave me a choice. He said, I can tell you everything that's going on. I can tell you all the rejections that, and all the, you know, dirt and all the, you know, nitty gritty details, or I can tell you sort of virtually nothing and just tell you, and just sort of tell you what comes out. Like I, you can see how the sausage is made or you yeah. can just eat okay. it. Your choice. Right. Um, and I said, I have enough to think about. I have a very, you know, uh, a, a very sort of high, highly demanding day job plus all of this. I think I'd rather just eat the sausage and not know what went in it. So I really don't know um, what his what his strategy was. But you know, I do know that like they were trying to make sure that the book was appreciated as like I guess I, I don't know how how they would they wanted to make sure that it, that it had a wider audience um, and that people didn't just um, file it away as something they wouldn't be interested in if they felt they are not interested in science fiction. And I'm sort of careful how I say that, because I think there's a lot of people out there who are very interested in science fiction, but they do not feel they are the kind of person who is interested in science fiction, although they read and watch it all the time. I think that's true. It's true in literature as well. I mean, there, there are a whole category of, I'm thinking of writers like Richard Powers now, whose market is not really the science fiction market, but most of his novels are science fiction. And it used to be mm-hmm. common knowledge in the field. It used to be advice you would get from older writers. If you could, Kurt Vonnegut, for example, if you can avoid the label, avoid it, but you can go ahead and write science fiction as long as you avoid the label. Right, right. Yeah, I, that makes sense to me. And uh, I mean, Haruki Murakami has written, you know, a couple of science fiction novels now. A lot, a lot of these, uh, a lot of, what you would consider very mainstream literary, uh, you know, names. Two different levels of success have written in the in that genre. I think Haruki Murakami, personally, I think you know, um, he's done it very well, and and I don't think that he's slumming in the genre. I mean, I think that he's written science fiction because he intended to write two very good science fiction novels, right, um, as works of literature, which science fiction is. So, you know, I I I've seen that. Yeah, there. It, we were discussing this, of course, before we started recording, right? Like how, uh, you know, careful they're trying to be around labeling uh, and and things like that. But um, 
I think genre can be really difficult because in some sense it's like a marketing category and it's about where a book gets shelved in a bookstore and that can prevent people from picking the book up in the first place. In other ways, it's like a set of expectations that a reader has. And in another way, it's like a set of prejudices that it invites a reader to have. Sure. Um, right. Well, uh, a set of prejudices, but also it, a set of framing uh, references as well, though. Yes. Yeah. When I say a set of, I, so I can, I would say that in a, in a, in a somewhat of a positive sense, I think that a genre can be a set of expectations, meaning like tropes, because this is really fun to play with as an author. And you sort of know, you, you, you know what your reader is expecting from a science fiction uh, story, for example, and then you can give them that, or you can not give it to them and you can give and not give in very interesting ways. And, and it's, it's a, it's a bit of a game that you play with them. Like you want this trope, but I'm going to give it to you from this angle. You want this, you're expecting this, but I'm not going to give that to you. And so their knowledge and your knowledge of the genre kind of become this another part of the literary game that you play with them, which I think is, you know, uh, Shakespeare did this a lot with genre, you know, when he would write his romances toward the end of his career, where he played with elements of both, you know, comedy and tragedy and mixed them in different ways and probably was very surprising and revolutionary for his audience at the time. But then there's that set of, you know, in a negative sense, it can close people's, um, minds to the degree where they become incapable of reading your story and and most i mean people who are kind of outside that genre don't think of themselves as readers of the genre and a really good way that one way where you really see this i think it's really interesting is that when someone reviews one of my short stories for example they always review the plot but they almost never talk about the theme and they almost never talk about the characters even though all of these things are very important to me as a writer and if i were if I were writing a mainstream story, because I've seen how mainstream reviewers work, it would not be about the plot. It would be about the themes and the characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, that's one of the ways in which a reviewer, when they go in to review science fiction versus something else, seems to be prejudiced toward a review of the plot because they read science fiction as being something plot-driven. That comes from inside and outside the genre, I think, to a, to a degree, but it's interesting, just interesting. I think me. there are elements in, in the, the Mountain and the Sea that clearly don't require any science fiction background to read, and other elements that strike me as being addressed to people who know something about science fiction, at least. I mean, essentially, to get back to themes, you're talking about there, there, the two big things I saw in the novel. One, the, the, the nature of artificial intelligence, the possible nature of alien intelligence, uh, which turns out to be octopuses, not aliens from outer space. But at one point, you have one of your main characters almost address the reader and say, this is not your first contact story, but we all sing around the campfire after we... So that that seems to be a way of telling science fiction readers, this is not childhood's end. This is not what you have seen in, in, in mm-hmm. prior novels. Not, not in a critical way, but in a, in a realistic way, because the other point that comes out again and again about alien intelligence is that it's really alien, and we really don't mm-hmm. have any framework for understanding it at all. Mm-hmm. I I really wanted so so the book for me was actually the answer to a challenge to myself and uh, and the challenge was um, I had watched so I watched the movie Arrival which I really loved uh, I re- I really thought it was a great film um, I thought it was one of the better science fiction films I'd seen in a while but um, I, I was watching the film I had been very myself invested in um, semiotics and biosemiotics to uh, sort of small important fields that I follow quite closely, especially, especially biosemiotics lately. Um, I felt like 
because Arrival was starting from a position of sort of being able to invent everything about the communication process that the alien would have, it's, it was very easy for the, for the writers to uh, develop a way the language would operate and then a way that people would understand it. And I wanted to come at it from a different way and think, from, think about it from the perspective of how, if a species evolved and was able to, do, to uh, attain symbolic communication, how would it do it in a way that is convincing to me uh, a person who's extremely skeptical and was sort of and sort of grew up very skeptical. Like when I was a kid, you know, other kids were asking, you know, um, why, right? You know, why is why this, why that? And I was always asking how, right? Like how is the sky blue, right? Not why is the sky blue, but how? You know, how is it that blue is the color that the sky has when light that comes from the sun isn't blue? What's yeah. happening? You know, if, if dragons breathe fire, then how, like, what's the combustion, you know, method inside them? How would, you know, how would this work? Why don't they burn themselves? Yeah. Like what's, you know, going on? Um, you know, I, I was, I was very interested in those questions. And so for me, what I, the, the core sort of challenge of the novel, and that doesn't really mean that it is the core theme of the novel was, can I create a language system and, a, and a, a way of physically doing language that I think is convincing. Working with real biology and trying to be as, as, as really critical of the process as I, as I can be so that a reader who is as critical as I am would find it uh, convincing. So that was, that was sort of my challenge. Um, and that's not to put down Arrival you know, and any of that stuff. But, but I, I really wanted to, to be as hard as I could. Maybe that's, that's why some people have called it hard SF, although I think that's interesting because it's, if it's hard SF, then it's hard biology rather than hard physics or something like that. Um, that that's, that's, really, that's really the challenge for me because I do think that communication is fundamentally hard and that communication with any other species is even more difficult. Although, you know, arguably anyone who has a pet understands that we communicate very well with other species. We say an awful lot to them and they say an awful lot to us. And, um, and we, you know, we're able to, to live with them in, in good harmony most of the time, unless you have cats. is based on, a, 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 if you like, a common biology, not a, a truly alien kind of intelligence or life form that may not have any of the reference that we share in common, particularly after thousands of years of domestication. Yeah, well, they're woven. They're, they're completely woven into human society. I mean, and that's, and that's sort of something that I, I would like to explore, you know, elsewhere. And it's another idea I've been thinking about uh, is that there's, 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 there is this sort of weave of human culture and society, which includes animals mm -hmm. in it. What's a very interesting, uh, you know, thing to think about is, is the human slash animal culture, which the human species has grown to have in the sense of like the human dog, human cat uh, relationships, the human relationships with our domestic animals, like the cow, the pig, the chicken, um, you know, the human relationships with other animals like crows, pigeons, sparrows that have come to understand our, our um, habits very well, right? Um, to use us for food and identify us by our faces and and, you know, I mean, it, it is really interesting how we've woven a, a, a sort of, of culture, a human culture that includes many other species in it, right? Um, species that understand us or misunderstand us to different degrees. And I think that's fascinating. But then the octopus, of course, is 
completely in some sense outside of that. But then also in the book, you see that the octopus is also tangled up with human well, uh, yeah, human and, uh, species. Well, I mean, there, there's a whole sub subspecies of academic literary study now called animal studies, which deals, of course, not with right. animals, but with human-animal interactions and that sort of thing. And you're right when you talk about domesticated animals, but then you're talking about octopuses, which is about as different an, an environment and a physiology as you can get and still have something that looks like intelligence. So one way of reading mm-hmm. uh, some portions of The Mountain in the Sea is is almost as a critique of, of first contact stories in, in the way that Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora was essentially a demolishment of generation starship stories. The, because the implicit argument by the end of the novel is, here's something which lives on our planet and in our same biosphere, and it is so different that the possibility of ever community, if, if that happens with something in our own biosphere, how could we ever hope to understand something that grew up in a different biosphere, in a different planet, in a different, uh, completely mm-hmm. different physical arrangement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I think that is one of the, um, well, so I, what I would say is, you know, with the, with the book, uh, what I, what I tried very hard to avoid doing is ever answering any question. Um, that I have. Um, I have lots of ideas about how some of these questions might be answered, but I wanted, I wanted to leave this, this open space where, you know, I, I really do, do think that a novel for me, like the ideal novel is a, is an architecture that you enter in which increasingly complicated questions are asked about the human condition, um, about, you know, whatever it is that the, the, the topic is, is being addressed. And I, I'm, I'm, of course, talking more about a philosophical novel and not just a piece of pure entertainment, which has its place. Uh, and I think is great. Um, you know, I don't want to get into sort of a binary argument about philosophical, you know, thoughtful novels versus like, you know, whatever, um, or anything like that. Um, but in that kind of philosophical novel, I feel like it should be just a, an area in which one can ask questions. And when it, when the novel starts to try to actually answer those questions, like really give you uh, something like that, it tends to tip over into this didactic, you know, tone that just doesn't work for me as a reader. And it may work for other people, uh, but it doesn't work for me. So I tried to create this kind of open space. And the way that I feel that the, the novel works is very, is there is this kind of dialogue, ongoing dialogue, which for me, you know, I think the best example of it for me is I grew up. I grew up with a very close relationship to Shakespeare because of my my mother. My mother had she was very convinced that you know you couldn't really be an educated person without understanding Shakespeare. Um, she she would read me these sort of summaries of the plays and we would talk about them and then we would go watch them and then we would discuss them afterwards. And so you know, I I really came to feel as if I I grew up with him almost as like a uh, you know, almost like a parental figure in a sense, you know, like I, I really had a, had a relationship to his, his thinking. One of the thing that, things that fascinates me about Shakespeare, and I think, think the thing that's so different from him, uh, different, you know, with him and everyone who came before him, and then mo- even most people who came after him, is that in Shakespeare's plays, you essentially watch a person unfold their process of thought to themselves. And it's a, it's a really interesting thing to watch. Uh, it's not just Hamlet. Of course, of course, Hamlet is the most famous one. But but almost every monologue in Shakespeare is basically like, this is what I think I need to do. But why why am I thinking about it this way? Perhaps actually this might be better. But why why would that make sense? And you know, in fact, in fact, I don't 
I'm nothing like like this person that they think I am. Oh, but I actually maybe I am. You know, and you and you sort of <laughs> you you watch this uncertainty, which for me is just is just fundamentally the human condition. This dialogue of the self analyzing and reanalyzing its own motivations, its purpose, its you know its direction, etc. And the book I wanted I wanted the book to feel like that too, as if you know you watch Ha. You know, you watch Evrim and you watch Altan Setseg and all of the characters in the book um, unfold themselves to themselves as the book goes on and sort of investigate not just what's happening to them and why, but what their relationship is to the to the rest of the world. Well, that was um, the point. Actually, it was the point that I started out my review of your book with was similar to that. Uh, and it goes back to one of the terms we've been bandying about, and Jonathan and, and we were all talking about this a little bit before we started recording, and that is the term speculative fiction, which is also one of these mm-hmm. problematical terms. Margaret Atwood adopted it to avoid using the term science fiction, but Atwood was not aware that Heinlein had coined the term back in the 40s and so forth. But one of the things that I, mm-hmm. one of the first things I noticed about the novel was exactly what you're saying about the characters. The characters were actively speculating about everything all the time. They're speculating about octopuses, mm-hmm. they're speculating about AI, about consciousness, about corporate greed. And they're doing this in, well, not quite in interior monologues, but they're actively speculating. And that's something you rarely see, actually, in science fiction, even though we call it speculative fiction. You don't mm-hmm. uh, see a lot of characters trying to figure out where they are within the scheme of things, with, even within the scheme of the novel. Uh, and one of the mm-hmm. things that was fascinating about all of your characters um, including the villainous ones, was that they were very concerned about their place in the story. Uh, mm-hmm. And they didn't, mm-hmm. they didn't seem to quite know what the story was. They were all constructing a different one for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that, mm-hmm. the first thing I thought was, okay, this is what really speculative fiction looks like. And it's not as though it's uncommon in science fiction, but it probably is more uncommon than it should be. Hmm. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's, that's interesting. I, you know, I want to, of course, I don't want to give away too much about, about the novel, but I mean, there are these three sort of main threads. And for me, there was, you know, some people have questioned their importance. And, and, and I think this is one of the, one of the things that people are, 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 it's, it's hard for people to swallow sometimes these multiple uh, narratives. Um, and I understand that as a writer, but, um, but they're actually extraordinarily uh, to the book. You know? um, uh, and I think that you're, that, Everything in the end of the of the book of the book, everything depends upon the decision that one person makes, right? And it's a decision that enables everything else to happen, right? And and that and that in a sense is one of the sort of the points of the of the book is that that the the that dialogue that that one character is having with themselves, right? That 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 struggle that they finally find a personal solution to opens up possibilities that would have been closed if they had gone any other way. Um, and even though, even though that, that sort of plot line may not seem as relevant as, as even as the other two. Right. Let me ask you this. I mean, uh, was it, <laughs> when you start, when you started constructing the mountain in the sea, I presume about six or seven years ago from the sounds of it, what was the first thing it was? Was it the concept? Was it building this language you were talking about? Or was there some other part of it that started the process? Uh, okay, so uh, it was June of 2019. Okay. Um, and uh, and the novel was finished by 
the end of 2020. But the thought, maybe, you know, the, the thought processes and a lot of the things that went into the, the novel were already playing, mm. you know, percolating else, elsewhere. I, I wrote a, a novella um, that explored some similar themes. I had to actually pull it from the place I had submitted to because it was there was too much overlap with this, I felt, um, and some other things. But I can actually tell you what the, the sort of the seed of the book was, and that is I was on Condal, um, and I was working on a project with, uh, with youth. We had been, part of the project had been to teach them to dive. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in order to teach them to dive, we actually had to teach a lot of them to swim. Although they had grown up on the, on the island, they had not ever you know, been in the ocean. And what's amazing is some of these, some of these kids were 15, 16 years old. Um, these islands are tiny. The island is so tiny that, it, that you know, it's air, there's an airstrip that actually crosses a small neck of the island from end to end. Oh, wow. Um, and it's a and it's an air, airstrip only suited for smaller planes. So so Kondao, um, Kansan, the main island, is a is very uh, is very small, and the archipelago itself is is not large. I was um, I was out on the island. I had been there for about a week working with these American scientists who'd come in to to work with the kids and, and some other people. And I had uh, decided to go on a night dive for the first time. I had never done diving at night. And that morning that I was supposed to go on that dive, uh, my grandmother called me told me that uh, my grandfather was dying and I should get off of the island. I should come home as soon as I, as I could uh, and see him one last time before he passed. So I was frantically trying to search for a way to get off of the island. Uh, and there were no flights available. There was a wind that had canceled the one plane that normally goes in and out. Uh, there was no way to get home to California. Uh, and a couple hours later, my grandmother called me and said, your grandfather is dead. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't really, you know, matter anymore. Just stop trying to come home. And he, he wasn't going to have a, a ceremony or anything. He had, you know, not wanted to do any of that. So there wouldn't be any more, a memorial service to go. Uh, and I didn't really know what to do. I was, uh, kind of numb and, uh, I decided that I would just go ahead and, and dive anyway. And I would just continue as, as, as I had been, cause there was nothing else to do. So, um, we, we got into the, we went out on the boat and you kind of, eat and sit around and talk and you wait for the sun to go down. It has to go down and have been down for some time before you go diving. And then you get in the water, you basically just, you go backwards off, off the boat uh, with all your equipment and you surface and the water is completely dark, of course. Um, no stars in the sky because it's somewhat overcast and you're sort of floating there and it seems like it should be really terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and like night diving really does seem like it ought to be. Uh, something very scary, but but somehow it's really not. And I'm not the only person to say this. I, I know a lot of, of people who dive and say that diving at night is even less uh, frightening in many ways than diving during the day. You get really focused on, on just what's in the beam of your light, and and you're so absorbed by that that you forget about everything else in the world. Which of course, if your grandfather has exactly where you want it, you're focused on whatever you're looking at in front of you and not thinking about. And as I was as I was diving, just sort of drifting around, looking at fish, fish who are asleep, kind of bobbing yeah. around there, you know, um, with their eyes open, which is, you know, it's hard to tell when they're asleep, except that they're not moving. <laughs> yeah. Um, all of a sudden, this cuttlefish comes drifting into my uh, lamp, and it's a juvenile cuttlefish, so it's still almost transparent, um, yeah. and it has this amazing rainbow of kind of like colors going on. On, you know, it's just turning all these different colors and its skin and comes right up to my mask and just looks at me. It's clearly just mm. very interested in, in what the hell I am. 
<laughs> doing, you know, and it starts just kind of following me around as I, as I swim, you know, maintaining a little bit of a distance, but just kind of zigzagging back and forth in my lamp, like this little party boat, you know, <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and then finally it, it sort of just takes off. And, and that moment really stuck with me. I think because I had a heightened kind of emotional, you know, state, um, that moment of kind of connection with that creature uh, stuck with me. What had stuck with me is, you know, I already was fascinated by cephalopod intelligence, et cetera. But it was very clear that that the the cuttlefish was really interested in in me and in communicating with me in some way. You know, he was <clears throat> making shapes with his arms and and making things on his, like symbols on his skin and sort of trying to see if there was something that I would respond to, backing up, coming in, kind of there was like an interplay. And I was and then I, I that kind of planted the seed of like, you know, what would talking to that cuttlefish actually look like what, you know yeah like what would be his his mm-hmm. way of of bridging that gap and what and how would i do that and so that kind of started the, th- the thought process so the, the novel really does actually have this kind of this birth yeah. point which, which which some other novels i think lack and certainly a lot of my stories lack because they're, they're more mostly like you know um Suzanne Palmer, I think, put it best. Like she, it's like like a ball covered in like some sticky goo, and you throw it down the hill. Use other junk as it rolls. <laughs> <laughs> Which you, you almost feel should be truer of novels because they they're the, this bigger thing, right? I mean, obviously, like yeah. you, I assume you're living with a novel, and I don't know whether the Mountain of the Sea is the first you've finished or not, but. I, you know, you live with it a lot longer than you live with any given short story. I assume. You know, yeah, I, I wouldn't yeah. For most, you have you live with those for years. I, I think it depends on the story. So, like, you know, I've had. So, I recently sold a short story to Asimov's called "The Case of the Bloodstained Tower," which is literally an idea that I think I've had since. I mean, for at least ten years, and I think for all of these ten years, I was literally just waiting to have the chops as a writer to be able to pull it off. Um, I knew that it was a really complicated idea. And then if I messed up the tone or I did anything that was a little bit from one side, like, it's like some, some stories have, have a lot of leeway. I think you can, you, you feel like, okay, this is, this idea could go many different ways. All of them are good. I can, you know, I could tell it first person, third person. I can do it with a sort of lighter tone, darker tone. I could do it hard science fiction or soft. And I've got a lot of, um, you know, these, these parts are, are, able to be put together in many different forms and all of them are seem good. This one was like, you know, if, if I miss one, if there's like one bolt left over, you know, I know that I have to take the whole thing apart again and I won't, I won't be up to the task. Um, and so, so some, some stories are like that. And then, and then some write themselves and they, you know, they just seem like they come out in a few days. Uh, I wrote uh, this story, the death of fire engine 10 or fire station 10 I wrote the death of fire station 10 in like two sittings after having uh, walked home and seen them bulldoze this fire station uh, in, in Arlington that I loved down and just, I kind of wrote this story in a fury. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so I, it, it can be many different ways, but the mountain in the sea, I felt once I started writing, um, what came as a surprise to me as a, as a writer was Evrim. So, so I had I was I was writing, and then I realized that the the team leader on the island would be uh, themselves an android, right? 
And and that was a surprise to me. I, I literally did not know that was going to happen until I wrote that scene on the beach where Ha meets. I didn't know who, who Ha was going to meet. Um, and, and, I, and I had not planned that. And it just came out. And then that, I think, was the, the element that, that made the novel whole. I mean, it really, I had kind of written the first couple chapters, struggled, sat down, thought about it, gone back and forth with where it was going. Did it have this, you know, did it have enough momentum for me to keep going? And then I wrote that scene and I was like, oh, okay, now that opens up door after door after door after door. And now I know there's enough here for a book. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this as well. I mean, uh, when you look at the, the point where that the mountain sea comes in, what you've been, you've been doing, I mean, you were saying you've been writing for a long time. There's a long gap between the first sales and now. Was this like, like from what I can see, you started, you sold your first story around 1996 mm-hmm. and like four stories between there and about 2015. Mm-hmm. How much of that is the demands of the day job and how much of it is working out what you're doing and how to go about doing it? Because I mean, Everybody finds their own path. Yeah. Um, I so when I was so in the nineties when I, I sort of started writing, I was mostly writing noir and kind of crime fiction and detective uh, stuff. That's sort right. of just what I, I liked. Uh, I fell into and it felt good to write. I had started writing these like mainstream stories at first, and they mm-hmm. just seemed overly romantic, and that it didn't seem to work. But but uh, but I was kind of an overly romantic, you know, person at that at that time, and noir was actually you know. People have a have a misinterpretation of noir. That noir is this emotionally deadened uh, kind of uh, you know um, sort of flat affected you know you know uh, uh, genre where where actually for me noir is like this incredibly emotionally heightened uh, mm. genre where where the emotions are just just right beneath the surface of every single word on the page but don't quite come out right. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was sort of a perfect a perfect genre to write in because it was this really repressed romanticism, <laughs> this kind of doomed uh, uh, thing that just a- appealed to me at the time. Um, and I I published a, a long novella. It's it's basically a novel, practically a novel, but it's kind of it kind of drifts on the edge of those two things, so like about forty thousand words or so, uh, called American Graveyards. I published it when I with TTA Press when I was twenty four. Uh, and, and after I did that, and my goal had been to publish a novel before I was 25. Um, and so I did, and I think that kind of wrecked me in, in a way as a writer, like the, actually achieving what I had wanted to achieve. And I didn't know what to do with it. So I published this book and I didn't know how to sell a book or, or, you know, like what an author was, what a writer was supposed to do in the world. And I was poor and, you know, just out of university and didn't know what, what I was going to do with myself. It didn't make sense for me to um, be able to make anything of that. So I I, uh, I joined the Peace Corps shortly after that, and I went to Turkmenistan, and then I spent almost 20 years abroad. Yeah. Um, and over that time, I was sort of, I was always writing, but I wasn't necessarily trying to get published. And and of course, when you couldn't do it very much by, except by hard copy, it was impossible for me. Sure, so, yeah. You remember that, like, I mean, the publishing industry is very, like, you know, yesterday's technology tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? Um, <laughs> they were still making people put things in envelopes long so, after yeah, right. email exists. <laughs> so, um, and it's very difficult to do that if you live in Ashgabat or, you know, sure. Moscow or... <laughs> yeah. Well, as, as so, finish. so partially the gap was just, was just that. I was just curious, though, as a, as a younger reader, when you mentioned the noir thing, 
Did you grow up reading a lot of science fiction or you were growing up on Raymond Chandler and William Lindsay Gresham and other people associated with NARA? I, I grew up, so I am, so I, I, I've been trying to sort of sort this question out because I, I think it's important to answer it in some ways uh, correctly for myself. Um, I think the thing that makes me different is that I am like the opposite of what a fan is in a sense. Like, like I, I, and I feel like a fan is someone who, who really loves a thing and wants to come back to it or wants that thing to expand and become so that there's more of it so that they can enjoy it more. And I, and I don't think that, and I, I don't think that's a negative impulse to have, right? Um, you really love the Hobbit as a kid. So you, you want to seek out books that are like that, that give you that same mm-hmm. feeling that the, that the Hobbit does. And, and you want to, but you, and you want more from it. You demand more from it maybe. And, you know, like a, a very smart fandom wants to get more and more out of out of out of it, and has high standards. Um, I was like the kind of weird thing about me as a reader was I would read a book, I would never reread it, a book, almost never. I would immediately go on and seek out another book. I could be in a completely different genre, like I was looking for something that didn't exist, and just I would read. I would read Stephen King. And then I would read, you know, the Red Badge of Courage. And then I, you know, would go and read. I mean, I just would read almost like anything. Um, you know, I would read, I would read Christine, and then I would get really interested in Pontiacs, and I would read like manuals <laughs> from the 1950s about <laughs> and you know stuff like that. And then I would get off track and I would, in the stacks and read whatever was like one shelf above that or one shelf below, and that would take me somewhere else. And then I would bounce off of that. And then I would also, you know, go and buy the latest X-Men and read that. So I never had this, I never had a sense of being um, a person who was reading in one genre. And I, I never, I never also had like a judgmental sense about genre. Like I, I, I remember the first time someone, I like heard someone sort of talking down about science fiction fans or something like that. And it just struck me as like totally crazy and just out of, nowhere like there's no like it didn't make any sense to me that you could think that people were stupid for liking a thing Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. (laughs) like a particular thing like uh so so i both i think because i was i was built that way for whatever reason i I i've never been condescending about about Mm -hmm. genre but i've also never felt like i was at home completely you know within a a, a genre so um, I'm, re- I'm writing, a, you know, I'm writing the next, well, I've finished the next project and that's sold and I'm done with that as well. So I'm kind of another one more project out. Um, and it's going to be very different from this. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm reading, I try to kind of read to feed into like a tone quite often. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I've gone back to the noir and I'm reading a lot of that and I'm reading a lot of spy novels and, 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 and other things, um, to kind of deepen my sense of that, like tonal world. Right. Sure. Um, but the thing yeah. is, you talk about not being invested in genre, about being an inquisitive reader going from one place to another, that, that sort of consistent looking back. At some point, as a writer, though, you're committing to science fiction itself or something you're doing. Or yeah. do you feel like that's not where you are? Because when, when I look at the last seven years or so, it's been science fiction that you have been focused on. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and 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 unashamedly. Um, so what happened was in uh, 2014, I had an idea, and uh, and the idea just happened to be a, a science fiction idea. 
Um, and the idea, which became the story mutability, the idea I had was, what if, you know, if, if we lived forever, it really wouldn't matter because none of us can remember anything that happened like 50 or 60 years ago or 30 years ago or even 20 or 10 years ago half the time. So all we would be were, would be these people who just drifted forever through this kind of for, like state of forgetfulness where you had this chunk, much like a human lifespan, that drifted along this time axis and you didn't die, but you also didn't know anything about who you who you've been <laughs> 300 years ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I kind of took that idea and uh, and it seemed unique to me. I hadn't hadn't read that anyone else had had, had done something like that. Um, and I and I wrote mutability and I got really, really lucky. I just got fantastic lucky. I I, I always had made you know an effort to send to professional magazines first. Um, in any genre that I was writing in, you send to the big ones and then go down from there. Um, because who knows? And not because I was being arrogant, but because who knows? I mean, you know, the, yeah, sure. the, the New Yorker might take your story. <laughs> I mean, like, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? absolutely. No, makes um, perfect sense. And you lose nothing by trying. So I sent I sent the story to Asimov's. And, uh, and then Sheila, um, she asked for a rewrite on it. Um, and I did a rewrite, which she wasn't happy with. Um, so I did another rewrite. And she took that. And, um, and then, you know, I wrote, um, do not forget me. That was, I think my second story in Asimov's in 2016. And because I think because I was writing science fiction, then I started thinking in science Mm -hmm. fictional terms. And so, you know, then, then, you know, you sort of, that's your, that, that's, that's your thought process. Um, you know, and and I love Sheila's quote about, you know, science fiction allows you this canvas. That's the size of the whole universe. And that's essentially it. Like I, I realized that science fiction would allow me to do all of the things that I had been doing with noir and yeah. with like mainstream sure. and all of these other things and poetry and all these things, but it would allow me this amazing amount of flexibility. I could just yeah. do it in ways that were really much cooler than, than, than the stuff I could do before. So, you know, I mean, I think one of the, when you talk about the kind of cool stuff, one of the, for me, one of the coolest stories that I've been able to write was a rocket for Demetrios, mm-hmm. right? Um, this kind of, alt history where, you know, where the fundamental question for me that, that, that was in the disintegration loops, which was sort of the prequel to that was, you know, what if America won world war two, but like a lot, <laughs> like way too much one, right? <laughs> like, like, like what if we like really like were able to beat up the rest of the world, then what happens? Like what happens to the balance yeah. of power and what happens to mm-hmm. your sense of who's good and who's evil and who's right and who's wrong then? And that's kind of what that universe is about. Like America really clobbers everyone else. Yes. And then what? And then what? Right. Yeah. Um, I always wondered, by the way, if, the, if and, that title uh, had anything to do with the old Eric Ambler novel. Oh. Okay. Oh, yes. So. Yeah. No, it's a direct reference. Yeah. Yeah. It's a direct reference to a coffin for Demetrios. Um, and, uh, and the, I mean, the, the story is just sort of saturated yeah, right, in, right. in Eric Ambler, who I, who I read a lot of just to just again to like pull in that like tone. And get, and get that across, um, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it was really fun. I mean, that was like one of the cool, one of the really cool things that science fiction allowed me to do is like set a story in a 1950s Istanbul, <laughs> right. In a completely different like world where America was, you know, this like initially benevolent, but increasingly menacing hegemon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so do you find yourself... It, you know, like content in science fiction, or interested in going in other directions as as you know stories unfold. 
Uh, I, you know, so I never really, when I'm, when, if I get an idea, I get an idea and sure. I will follow any idea to the end. And I've published a couple of mainstream stories in the midst mm -hmm. of all this. Uh, I mm -hmm. published a story in Cobalt, uh, another story in uh, mm, Queens Quarterly in, in Canada. So a few mainstream mm -hmm. stories as well. And, sure. um, you know, if I get, if I get the idea, I'll pursue it. I just, I just finished a story, which I, you know, will send out soon. Um, where I think I, I'm, I myself don't know if it's really science fiction or not. Mm -hmm. Like it's so close for me to being, uh, kind of mainstream fiction that it makes me feel a little uncomfortable, but it's definitely for me, it's science. Like I, I believe it's science fiction, but then I look <laughs> at it and I'm like, the only thing that's actually science fiction in here is maybe this one little thing. But, yeah. um, I, I, I just think I've come to love writing in the genre and yeah. and what I can do with it, and I I think it's just a good match for my yeah. uh, my way of writing and my way of thinking. Um, I think I'll stick with it. I, I don't see any reason I wouldn't, but I wouldn't say I won't write something else because sure, sure. you know um, I just don't know. Like if I get if I get an idea that doesn't have any science fiction elements, I guess I would write that. But there's still a, yeah. do the demands of novel writing pull you away from writing short fiction? No, I think, um, so in the midst of writing the book, I mean, 2021 was my most productive year. I think I had seven pro mm. sales and two translations from Russian in 2020. Yeah. And that was right in the middle of writing The, the Mountain and the Sea. So yeah. I don't have much of a, um, I don't have like a back catalog that I'm trying to sell really. Yeah. I, I, um, I've managed to sell nine out of 10, probably the stories that, that I write. And if I don't sell after sending to five or six markets, I usually just shelve it. Yeah. There's a question that you, uh, I have to ask this because if you haven't been already asked this, you're going to find it coming up at, at a book signing somewhere. Did you see that strange film called My Octopus Teacher? Yes. And yeah, I did. I yeah. would like to have just a quick thought on it because after reading your novel, my attitude toward that film changed. I, um, yeah, I, uh, so I have, a, I have an ethical problem. Yeah. <laughs> exactly what I was. Thinking. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess my, my ethical problem is, you know, um, I wouldn't let a shark rip my friend's arm off, even if I knew his arm would grow back. And, um, and I, and, and the person, who, you know, who's filming the, 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 the movie was not, is not a scientist and has already interfered in, in this animal's yeah. life and distracted it from, from its primary, uh, you know, purpose, which is to survive in its environment, um, not to just buddy up to a human. Um, and so I, I don't want to believe that someone would allow a shark to attack their friend just to inject more drama into a movie. Um, mm -hmm. but that seems like what well, happens. I, 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 yeah. I, I, that, that's probably the most dramatic moment in the movie, but the whole arc of the relationship after again, after reading the mountain and the sea, I was thinking, okay, um, alien intelligence when it deals with animals or creatures that we can actually interact with always turns out to be lassie, and and it sort of turned out to be lassie in the yeah. end of that movie as well. And I thought, I don't believe yeah. at all that the octopus thinks the way that film thinks it thinks. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think it's I think it's the title of a book that that someone recently wrote. It's not a book that I've read, but I love the title, which is like, are we smart enough to understand how smart animals are? Right. Right. <laughs> and, and, and then, <laughs> another thing you, uh, you cited in the novel was that famous Thomas Nagel essay. What is it like to be a bat? 
which still, right. what, 50 years later or something, still is seems to be a valid question that science fiction hasn't always addressed successfully. Yeah, and I, I'm very skeptical of, of, I mean, I'm skeptical of the idea that we, um, I mean, I think that we we think we understand far more than we truly do about what's going on in other mm -hmm. people's That's minds true. with whom we yeah. share, you know, lots of, of common experience. Um, I think that we, you know, we use our intuition to bridge a lot of gaps and there's a lot of misunderstanding, uh, even in human communication. So yeah, the idea that one could communicate, okay, you can communicate with an octopus, mm. right? Um, but, uh, but I'll give you a really good example of, of why I think this is, problematic so if I, I learned this as a peace corps volunteer in turkmenistan and this is probably you know was one of my times this two years that i spent in peace corps making an idiot of myself quite often it was probably you know where i got a lot of my sense of how fundamentally difficult communication is mm -hmm. um if i say to you you know um i don't really get along with my mother right um if i if i say it to you as a as a western person um you probably, you might think I'm oversharing slightly, right? But uh, but you'll probably say, oh, you know, it, this is a conversation we could probably engage. Um, and, it, and it, you know, and it, and it doesn't mean that that much. Um, everyone's got family issues, we, something you could probably relate yeah. to, you know, on one degree or another. If I say to a Turkmen person, I don't get along with my mother, right? Um, I've used the same words. I can say it in Turkmen, you know, and I can say it in Turkmen so that it's grammatically correct. And what I have said to them is, uh, I am a, person that is not to be trusted you should never speak to me again or interact with me in every in any way because i don't even understand the most fundamental relationships that a human being could have what loyalty means um anything that could possibly make my words matter to you like just don't ever talk to me again right <laughs> um i mean it's just a it's just a it's, it's this, you may know what you are saying, but you don't know what was heard, right? Yeah. Um, and even, and, and the, you know, the, I mean, the Turkmen are, are a society in which the bond between parent and child is sacred, right? If I, if to ask a Turkmen, for example, like, oh, have you ever had an argument with your parents? Is like <laughs> asking them like, oh, have you ever, you know, taken an ax to someone randomly in the streets? You know, I mean, madness, like madness to think that they would, they would ever talk back, you know, to, to their parents. And, and I, I think that just, you know, understanding how different human beings right. can see the world and then transferring that to, to a, an animal that has its own, has a form that we understand so little about that is so fundamentally different in the way it interacts with its environment that is so incredibly uh that is such a survivor right that has survived um deadly violence every single moment of every yeah, day right. of its life right since it was born right that like th to think that you could form a relationship that you would understand and that you could interpret and understand its behavior is just it makes it a film about mental illness almost right yeah it is. it's interesting that's fair. But um, let me ask you this: since we're sort of we've been talking for close to our allotted hour, and we try not to keep people too, you know too, too long. Um, you've got the Mountain and Sea, which is out in the world right now, and so people can go and order it and buy it and read it. Uh, and you've intimate you've sort of intimated that you've got the next project finished. Can you tell us anything about what comes next for you? 
Uh, yeah. So the next the next problem project is finished, and I think I think people will be hearing about it pretty soon. Um, I know it's kind of on the on the you know table to be announced at some point. Um, and then I am I am working on another book. I, I never talk in any detail about what I'm working on because I just think oh, it expends yeah. energy that should be you know put into that. Mm-hmm. Like that. Um, but uh, you know, I just. I try as much as I can just to get up early in the morning and, and write and, yeah. and to just try to move forward. And honestly, I mean, all of the buzz around the book's release and dealing with agents and contracts and all of these things, I, I find them very distracting and um, it's not, um, it's not good. You know, it's not healthy for my, for my writing process. And so I try to put them as far away from myself as sure. I can. Um, you know, I will just continue to explore what I care about. Um, yeah. I think that it's totally crazy in some ways that this book ever got bought because it was just such a weird idea. And like, and yeah. it was completely written for myself in some sense. Like I just, yeah. I set, I set this like really like bizarre question in front of myself and then, and then tried my best to answer it. And, and the fact that it's getting, getting published and people are reading it and enjoying it and, and that kind of thing, it's just, blows my mind i think it's just really cool um and uh i hope that they will like the next thing too and and i hope you know that what i'm working on now will come to fruition i'm at this place you know always in in, like whenever you're writing a novel it's like you're flying a plane while you build Mm -hmm. while you build it and uh and it feels like really scary (laughs) and and like it's just not gonna work and so right now i'm like definitely in a place with this this project at present where i'm like oh yeah this is totally (laughs) not gonna work and i cannot pull this off and I am, I am not even, I don't have the writing experience. Like there's just no way that I'm going to, I'm going to do this, but I know, I know on the other hand that, um, you know, if my past experience is, is anything, uh, has anything to say, I will be able to land this plane right? <laughs> 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 at some point in the future. <laughs> oh, well, one of the, one of well, the things we didn't get to, and we, we, we have to take spend another hour is you were talking about and why you were talking about the relationship to, uh, to what David Hartwell once called neurological hard science, which is an interesting term mm. because he's basically saying that the science of neurology is no longer what it was 50 years ago, which was basically a version of psychology, but it's actually a hard science. Now. And he was talking about, yeah. and, and I think that fits into it. There are other elements of the mountain and the sea that are taken pretty much directly out of horror story. There's a sea adventure story mm. in it. In other words, there are a lot of genres playing mm-hmm. around in this, and we've made it look maybe too much like a hard SF novel, but a hard SF novel is one of the many things it does, which I think is what fascinates mm-hmm. uh, readers so much. Uh, yeah, I, I guess, you know, I, that, and I guess that comes from that, that sense that I, that I have uh, as being this person, you know, who just loves so much in, in, in different genres and in, in different, you know, um, I mean, I really wanted to, I wanted to put things in there that I love the, the tempest mm-hmm. is there, right. Uh, you know, um, and there is this, and the, yeah, and there's this sort of Jack London style, you know, I mean, there's of course, you know, the, the, I'm not giving up too much of an Easter egg, but obviously yeah, Seawolf, right. right <laughs> it, it's a direct reference to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, so, so there's, I, I, I just, I, part of me felt like, okay, so I'm a short story writer, right? And, and so, and I, now I've got like 80 to 100,000 words. I, there's two different ways I can go about this. I can try to paint this vast uh, landscape and take my time 
with lots of things and, and write like long sort of, you know, dialogues and descriptive scenes and do, and do all of this kind of big stuff. Just to, just take a short story and kind of pull it, expand it and get into more detail. I can, I can do that. Or I can basically be like Hieronymus Bosch, right? And I can just take this canvas and fill it with as much, you know, in the way of like pack it yeah. with like just the these little miniatures, right? Um, but make it all try to work, you know, at that larger level too. And that's kind of what I what I tried to do. Like I wanted, I did, I don't want to cheat because I feel like if, as a short story writer, if I just if I just spend a little more time getting into it, I'm just cheating. I'm like wasting the reader's time. So I wanted every every chapter to be like short, like in out, and like do all of this stuff, but do it at this like longer length, right? Um, and and I guess that's also where that where that that ends up. So, so the kind of everything ends up in there, Frankenstein, right, Frankenstein and yeah. you know the Tempest, and and on all of on all of these things, everything that I've read and loved about uh, about literature, I try to find a place for you know um, having learned from it in my in my own work. Yeah, so so that's where where you get this kind of mix of genres, and then the hard SF stuff, of course, kind of loops back to what we were saying before. Like, I really, I you know, this this sounds it sounds a little corny. I I really love my readers, mm-hmm. I do, and I and and the, the, if there's one difference between me as a writer when I was 16 and me as a writer when I'm 46 is when I was 16, I just like to listen to myself talk, and I thought I had answers about the world. And and I could put them on paper and be profound and 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 wise and and you know tell people things and and at, at this point what I really feel like I want is to like give my readers a place to just enjoy being in and an experience that they find mm-hmm. rewarding which I think is just a different thing like I want to I want to just sort of hold them in this space and allow them to enjoy thinking about it enjoy just mm-hmm. being there and experiencing it. It's a, it's a, it's just, that's where I've come to as a writer is the, you know, is the magic of this whole thing is, is the fact that there's this like, and it's real, right? So there's nothing mystical about it. There's these neural fires out there in the dark where I can't see them, you know, these electrical connections that are being made inside these minds that I've never even met reading this book. And that's amazing, amazing. And respecting that conversation that's going on for me is just like, uh, that's what makes it worth it. You know, all the, all the work that goes into the book is just like, there's this neural fire out there. You know, people are experiencing new things and bringing what they know to this like book. And, and, you know, I'm doing, we're, I'm a part of that and it's great. I've been able to reach out and communicate with It's wonderful. Yeah. I don't think we could end in a, on a better uh, note than that. I'll say again that The Mountain and the Sea is out there for uh, book buyers to, to find, and we recommend that you do. But for the moment, Ray Naylor, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. It's been a genuine pleasure. Jonathan, Gary, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's really been, been an fun. honor. Until our next time, it's been the Coods Treat Podcast.